All right. So I decided to kind of start there sort of, I guess, last second, because I think it's relevant to where we're trying to end up. And um, with that being said, you know, normally we're going through the gospel of Luke, uh, and that's, that's our Sunday morning thing. We're in the, in the middle of the, you know, what the world typically calls the prodigal son story. So we last Sunday talked about the, the son who went away, and this next Sunday we'll be talking about the son who stayed behind, um, and, and we'll, we'll deal with that. And I think that actually more of us probably relate to that son than we might first um, want to acknowledge. But today, obviously, it's a special day. It's the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, I'm not one to typically change what I do on holidays, but this, if there's no resurrection, there's no reason to gather. We're just a do-gooder club who isn't even very good at doing that. <laughs> um, so we need the resurrection. We need the fact that Jesus is alive, and hopefully we'll be able to see the importance of that through, throughout our time. So what I want us to think about as we start, again, if you want to turn to Acts 2, we'll end up in Acts 2, but kind of what, what I wanted to start with is the idea that here we are in the 21st century. It's been 21 centuries since what we're reading about took place. We're in the 21st century. We're in the Pacific Northwest. This is what Peter describes in Acts 2 as those who are afar off. You can't get much more afar off from Jerusalem than Oregon. But here we are. And we have to acknowledge, we, we have to look at that, that, that we're in this modern time, but oftentimes we forget that. We, we look at it as though Peter wrote this, or Peter was giving this sermon yesterday, um, which it's very relevant to us today, but we have to look at it from the lens of what was taking place at the time that he was uh, speaking this. So what we have is this situation where the prophets of Israel had been silent for 400 years. There's 400 years of silence of no prophet getting any word from the Lord and people wondering what's going on. They had come back to the land after being exiled and punished for, for their idolatry. Now that they're back, they're not hearing from the Lord anymore. And they have this 400-year silent period, which is broken by an elderly priest going into the temple to offer incense, and Gabriel, the angel, comes in and speaks. Heaven's doors, in a sense, open back up, and God is ready to speak. And we, we read about this as we went through the Gospel of Luke, but we have this man, Zechariah, who was a priest, um, and he was serving in the temple. It was his lot, and he was serving in the temple. He's spending time um, burning the incense. He's waited his whole life to do this kind of a thing. Gabriel steps in and says, you're going to have a son. Well, he's old. He doesn't necessarily believe it. So... Gabriel says, fine, since you don't believe me, you can not talk anymore, <laughs> at least not until you see this happen. And so what they know, what the people recognize is that Gabriel has seen something, or excuse me, that Zechariah had seen something, but he can't tell them what he had seen because he can't talk. And so they know God is finally moving. He's doing something. And there's this 
big birth announcement that takes place at the birth of John the Baptist where they are trying to name him and they come up with John. John is his name because that's what Gabriel told him to name him, right? And people are wondering, what kind of child is this going to be? And then 30 years pass by and nothing. Like it, it seems like God is saying something, but then he's not. Like 30 more years. Some of us haven't even been alive for that long. I have, if, in case you're wondering. Um, 30 years pass by, and then this guy named John, the son of Zechariah, shows up in the desert wearing camel hair as a prophet, calling people to repent, baptizing Jewish people as though they weren't Jewish people, calling them to repentance, and people start wondering what's going on. And then John does the most important thing that he did in his whole career as a prophet. He pointed to the one that they had been waiting for since Genesis chapter three, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would, though he would have his heel bruised, would defeat sin, defeat death, and take it all away, finally. Jesus shows up on the scene. John points to him and says, behold, not the king of kings, but the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He points him out as, as a lamb, though they were looking for the lion. And there he is. Jesus is teaching. Um, he's going in a way that they had never seen before. He's teaching as a man with authority. He challenged the rulers. He gave sight to the blind. He worked these miracles. He, allowed, he caused the lame to walk. He was touching and healing people who were leprous. He was casting out demons. He was causing the mute to speak. He walked on water, fed 5,000, claimed to be able to forgive sin, and claimed to be the son of God. He was tried by his enemies. He was declared over and over again to be innocent, even by the government. Pilate said, this man has done nothing deserving of death. And yet he died. They're walking through this, this whole situation. Peter and those guys who had put their hope in him, they left their nets behind. They'd been following him for three years. And then their Messiah dies. The one that they thought was the Christ was dead. The one they thought was the Christ was dead. That's, that's strange timing for that. Um, And this man, prior to dying, does something that they should have known. They should have been aware. And in fact, I think some of them were aware of the significance of what he had done. See, at Passover week, only 50 days prior to where we're going to be in the text, Jesus rode in on a donkey, fulfilling what it said in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that the king would come and you would know he was the king because he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And everyone laid palms down at his feet as the donkey rides in saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling him the son of David, declaring him to be the Messiah. And less than a week later, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. That's the people that Peter is about to talk to. They, they knew full well that Jesus had died, and there he was with an empty tomb and no good explanation for how it happened. 
I thought about going into all of the, the theories that people have come up with that are just really lame. Um, they don't work. They don't, you know, that Jesus didn't actually die. Um, that would be a miracle in and of itself because the Romans didn't let you get off the cross without being dead, let alone there's significant, uh, even extra biblical support for the fact that Jesus did die. So he died, the tomb is empty, and now he's appeared to his disciples for the last 40 days. He's been appearing to each one of them. And we read a little bit about that in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is recounting the fact that we know that Jesus is alive because he had appeared to so many of them, even 500 at one time. They couldn't, they couldn't doubt the fact that he was alive because he had been seen by so many eyewitnesses. So Passover has passed. The resurrection has taken place, but the people don't know about it. And what Jesus tells them to do, according to Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, he's, he's resurrected, he's alive after being crucified, and he's walking with the disciples, he's about to ascend into heaven. And in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4, it says, while he was standing Staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." So there they are doing what Jesus told them to do, and that was wait in Jerusalem. Jesus ascended into heaven, and it's been 10 days. And now the next feast is upon us. These Jewish people, Jerusalem is flooded with all these people because it's time for Pentecost. 50 days after Passover comes Pentecost. And they're there celebrating Pentecost. All of these people from all of the nations surrounding um, that were Jewish had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this commemoration of the coming down of the law. That's what Pentecost was about. When Moses brought the law down on Mount Sinai, that was the day that they're celebrating at this time here. And Pentecost is taking place and there they are waiting. There's 120 of them, including Jesus's brothers who once mocked him and didn't believe in him, including Jesus's mother, including the 12 minus Judas. And they're all in the, in the room praying. And then we see what ends up happening in Acts chapter two. While they're waiting, while it's Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down in a way they're not expecting. And because of the way he comes down, there's attention being drawn to them and they do exactly what Jesus said they would do. They receive power and they become witnesses to what, he is, what it is that he accomplished. So if I was to give an outline for this, I would say it's the spirit supplied at Pentecost in the first 13 verses. The, the event explained to the people in verses 14 through 21 the Messiah proclaimed to the people in verses 22 through 35, and the reason provided to the people in verse 36 through 41. Now, tr don't worry, I'm not going to do verse by verse, breaking down every single word. It's going to be more of an overview. I, I didn't want to 
look into the audience and see the panic, like he's seriously going to go. That that's we're going to. This is going to be Easter Monday by the time he's done. Um, it, which Canadians celebrate? I, I saw it on the calendar. So, anyways. So what we see is that the Holy Spirit comes down and they start speaking in languages that they didn't know, but that languages that existed amongst the people that, that had shown up. See, the Jewish people had been scattered among, uh, along the whole world, and some of them remained scattered, but they would still come back into Jerusalem to celebrate. And so they didn't all speak Aramaic, they didn't all speak Hebrew, or if they did, they would also know the languages of the nations that they lived in. But they were all gathered together to celebrate, and the Holy Spirit comes down demonstrating his power so that 120 people start speaking in languages they didn't know before. They point out the fact that these are Galileans. They're, they're hicks from the north. People don't normally, you know, they're uneducated. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin, they look at them and they're like, these are uneducated fishermen. How, do they, how can they talk like this? The Holy Spirit, that's how. And so the Holy Spirit comes down with power and Peter stands up. Well, let me, I won't get into a whole doctrine of what is happening here, but needless to say, what God is accomplishing in this moment is that he's undoing Babylon. In Genesis chapter 11, what happened when the, the world was united against God, the world had come together speaking one language to build their tower to say, we'll do it our way. They were a nation in and of themselves following a guy named Nimrod. There's a reason we call people, anyways. They're following this guy Nimrod. And what God says is, I'm going to confuse their languages. And what, that, what happens is, in confusing their languages, they divide up into the people groups, and that's where all the nations start coming from. They scatter based on what languages people speak, and instead of being united as one, they're divided and spread out. Well, what's God doing? He's undoing Babylon. He's allowing, through this gift of tongues that's happening in uh, by the Holy Spirit, he's drawing people back in to create a new nation un under a new king. You see, Nimrod is a terrible king. He was an evil king. He was a wicked king. But Christ is the righteous king, the one that he had been promising since before Nimrod was ever born in Genesis chapter 3. And so we, we see him undoing Babylon with this gift of tongues and he's creating, he's drawing people in. Now that his king has arrived, now that the king has died, was buried, and has risen, he's taking the next step in his accomplishment in creating this new nation. Now, I'm not teaching replacement theology. If that's what you think I'm doing, that's not what I'm talking about. Because Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that he, was, he took down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile to create a new people. That's what a Christian is, somebody who's of Christ. Christ just means Messiah. We're of the anointed one. And so he's undoing all that. And in undoing all that, everybody gets the, the attentions drawn to them. They're like, what's going on? And there's two things that end up happening. At the very end of that, in verse... Um, there we go. At the very end of that, they end up asking a question there in verse 13. Well, verse 12. It says, They were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they're filled with new wine. 
So there's two responses, and we have to see that that's where we're going to end up. We have two responses that we, we can make. There's those who dismiss them with the ad hominem attack, like they're a bunch of drunks. But then there's other people that are like, I don't understand what's happening. I want to know what's going on. And Peter stands up and addresses them, and first he, he dismisses their dismissal. They're dismissing them as a bunch of drunks, and he stands up and goes, it's nine in the morning. We're not drunk. And then he goes on to prove that's the next part is this explanation of what's taking place. And he says, what's taking place is that which the prophet Joel spoke about. And Joel was a prophet from, there's a debate on how long ago he lived, but the minimum amount of time between this and that is over 400 years. Just let me put that in context for you. The United States, not even 300 years old, 244 years old. So... It's a long time ago. It'd be like somebody saying, hey, there'll be a gathering in Seaside um, prior to the United States ever being created, and people would say, great, what's Seaside? (laughs) And so Joel is talking about what would take place, and Peter's not just saying, making something up, trying to explain it, but he says, this is rooted in Scripture. He goes right to the Bible, goes right to the Old Testament, and he quotes, off the top of his head, by the way, he quotes what Joel had to say in Joel chapter 2 and says this in verse 17 of Acts 2. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if you have any questions about how some of that hasn't happened yet, we can talk after for time's sake. We just have to go to the beginning and the end of what he's talking about with Joel. He's saying, you're, watch, you're witnessing what Joel was promising or that God promised through Joel that he would pour out his Holy Spirit on all of these different people. Now, you, we have to understand what kind of a phenomenon that would be. You see, to the, to the Old Testament thinking crowd, the Holy Spirit, yes, came upon people like one at a time, like just special people. Just the, really, the ones that God really, really wanted, the Holy Spirit could come upon those people, you know, like David or Elijah or Elisha. The most they had ever had, and it was only momentary, was in the book of Numbers, where when Moses chose the 70 elders of Israel, they temporarily prophesied. That's the closest to this phenomenon that ever took place in their history. And now Joel is making a promise that it doesn't matter who they are. In fact, notice it says even male servants and female servants, slaves, men, women, slaves, it's not about who you are, it's, not, it's about whose you are. Who do you belong to? And that's who the Holy Spirit will come upon. And so that's what he's talking about. This is what happened. This is what Joel was was promising would take place. And this is what's happening now. He's rooting it in the Bible and explaining it through the Bible, which is something we have to be, um, we have to be cognizant of. We got to remember those type of things. So 
The Spirit was available to common people. There's 120 of them um, that are evidencing the fact that the Spirit's doing that. Now, yeah, I will say this. Tongues is not evidence of salvation. If you want to ask me about it later, we'll talk about it later. That's, that's not what's being talked about. But it's, it's something that can't be denied. <clears throat> so Peter is proving what took place by prophecy. Now let's look in verse 22. Uh, after he, he draws them in with the prophecy, they've got their attention drawn to them. In verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the first presentation of the gospel with the Holy Spirit backing it up. Peter's standing up presenting the gospel. Notice the three elements that he's talking about. The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about, you guys know about Jesus. Remember, we're, we're, we've transported ourselves back into the first century in Jerusalem. Everybody knew who Jesus was. Remember when Jesus in Luke 24 came and started talking to uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking along with their heads hanging down and he walks alongside him and goes, you know, hey guys, why so glum? That's not what he says. He, he just is like, what, what's going on? And, and he's, they're like, well, what do you mean what's going on? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? That's the way they respond to it. And he's like, oh, what things? He wants them to tell him. And so they explain how they supposed Jesus to be the Messiah, and you know, then he appears to them resurrected. He's talking with them after his death. But all that is to say that everybody in Jerusalem knew what was happening. See, back then, I don't know if you knew this, but historically, Netflix did not exist. So they didn't have all of these distractions and things that could take their attention away. When something big happened, everybody knew about it, and they didn't have the attention span of a squirrel to go to the next thing. They would think about it. They would be pondering this for months, for years, because big events caused big thoughts to take place. They, they were an ancient society who was undistracted by those type of things, and they would be watching and listening to what took place and contemplating, what does this even mean? What happened? And so as he talks about him in verse 22, he says, Jesus was proven, authenticated as the Messiah, is, is another way of saying that, by the things that he did and by the way that he lived. Now, for time's sake, we just have to know that his, his miracles, what he did, even the enemies of the cross couldn't deny that he did them. In fact, remember, they blamed him on demons when they couldn't explain them because they just didn't want him to be the son of God. So they couldn't deny what he had done. He had lived a perfect sinless life, which is also important because if he isn't sinless, then we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. But in, in so doing, in so saying, verse 23 then, he talks about his death, that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that it was all God's plan. If you look back at Genesis chapter three, I've referred to it a few times, it's the, the reference to where God says that the seed of the woman 
would come along and crush the head of the serpent. He would defeat sin and he would defeat Satan, but it wouldn't happen without his heel being bruised. It would cost, cost him his life, but not permanently. And so that's all the way back in Genesis chapter three. And we see that it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. If you turn on the Discovery Channel or whatever it is that, that you end up um, watching, I don't know why, but this time of year you'll end up with, they'll, they'll have scholars uh, that come along and they, they pose the question, I've seen it most years, is where they pose the question, did Jesus know he was going to die? It says right here it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In fact, Jesus, over and over and over again, and as we've even talked about, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, said, guys, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day, I'm going to raise. He told them what would happen before it happened so that when it happened, they would be able to believe that it wasn't an accident. It was done on purpose. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God was for Christ to come, to live sinlessly, to show us what righteousness and holiness really looks like in a person, and then to be crucified, to be killed in our place, and to raise again. That was his plan. In fact, what's interesting about the foreknowledge of God is that God knew the events even without having to force all the events. The word foreknowledge is actually, in the Greek, is a, an English word that we use. It's prognosis. I don't even have to like make it sound different. It's it is prognosis. That's the word. When you ask the doctor, what's the prognosis? Well, they're not God, but they're going to give you their best guess at what, what they're expecting to take place. In other words, was Jesus expecting the death, burial, and resurrection? Yeah. It was his prognosis. It was the foreknowledge of God that brought these things about. He knew what would take place. And then it says in verse 23, um, that he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, if anybody wants to take this as being anti-Semitic, the word lawless men is a reference to the Gentiles. It was everyone who's responsible for the death of Jesus. Not just the Jewish people, not just the Gentile people, all people. We're all responsible. If you want to know who killed Jesus, you're looking at him. I killed him. It was my sin that did it. He died in my place. But it says that he was handed over and um, crucified. And that word crucified, it's the only time it appears, is, actually, is literally pinned. He was pinned and he just leaves it as pinned. And then executed through being pinned to the cross. The cross is left out because he's trying to, he's trying to draw on something that they would full well know. See, none of these guys were strangers to actually seeing a real crucifixion. We have little pictures and paintings and sometimes we think we understand what it is. It was brutal. It was disgusting. There's no way Jesus just got up afterwards, just you know, stretched his arms and was like, wow, that was, that was a rough day. I think I'll push this rock out of the way and walk out. That couldn't happen through crucifixion. So he experiences this crucifixion and it's by his foreknowledge and plan. And then it says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What's interesting about that, other than the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you want to know who raised Jesus from the dead, read your New Testament. God raised him, the Father raised him, Jesus raised him, and the Spirit raised him. 
It's actually in all places, all people, all people are referred to as being the ones responsible for his resurrection. That's why we believe in a trinity. It explains it the best. Doesn't mean I understand it completely, it just means it explains it the best. But all that is to say, he, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Now, every other time this word pangs appears, it, you guys re- might remember birth pangs. Like when you read the word in, the, in the, the Bible, you'll read the word birth pangs, and that's usually where this word pangs is, is referring to. And, and if you think about, you know, I have four kids. I was there when all four of them were born. The pangs that a woman travails in uh, in order to bring about a child is painful, but there's a reason behind it because through that pain, through, through the event taking place, a new life emerges, a new life comes into the world. And so I think Peter is even playing on that, that mental thing that we can look at and go, the pangs of death are loosed like birth pangs because death couldn't hold him. Well, what happens when a mother goes through birth pangs? She brings new life into the world. What happened when Christ went through the pangs of death? Jesus said in John chapter three, verse three, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. But because he went through those pangs, anyone can be born again. He made himself available to each one of us to bring new life into the world. Loosing the pangs of death. It says it was not possible for him to be held by it. I, I just love that me- mental picture that death can't hold him. Death could not do anything about having Jesus in its grasp because it was temporary. Jesus could not stay dead. It was not possible. Why? Because Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, yet Jesus was without sin, so he was suffering a debt he didn't owe and therefore couldn't be held by the punishment that was deserved for someone who actually had sin. Since he didn't owe it, it couldn't hold him. Think about that. And so all of those things were loosed, and then um, so we've got the gospel contained right there, his life, his death, and his resurrection, And then we see Peter quoting again from the Old Testament. He says, this comes from um, Psalm 16. Excuse me. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make... Uh, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So he quotes Psalm 16, again, anchoring it in the fact that when in Isaiah, read through Isaiah 42 through 48, Jesus, or excuse me, the Lord says over and over again, I will prove to you that I am God by telling you ahead of time what's going to happen so that you know when it does happen, I am the Lord. And he has different poetic ways of saying it, but that's essentially what he's saying. You guys are worshiping these idols, these false false gods. Let me show you that I'm not one of them. And he gives them prophecy. And so Peter wisely goes back to prophecy and he's proving it and says something that David wrote a thousand plus years before this. Think about that. This was written down a thousand years, not before us, before Peter 
This is a thousand-year-old thing that he's declaring, and he reads from Psalm 16, this, this psalm that would make no sense apart from Jesus showing up, dying, and resurrecting. And, there's a re- and Peter points to that. But I want to I look at one thing real quick. It says in Acts 2.27, where he's quoting from Psalm 16, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. That word corruption there means rot. And according to David, Dr. David Hawking, what he said about corruption was the Jewish people view corruption as taking place on the fourth day. But what day did Christ rise from the dead? The third day. How do we know that that's even a, a feasible theory? Because remember in John chapter 11, when Lazarus died, Mary, uh, excuse me, Martha, his sister, when Jesus was like, roll the stone away, in John eleven thirty nine, 39, he goes, but Lord, it's been four days. He stinks. Corruption has set in, is what she's talking about. And Jesus being raised on the third day, was not allowed to see corruption. He didn't rot. And so therefore, that has to be one of the things that David was even talking about. Okay. He uses that psalm, and the other thing that that we want to, well, I'll draw back to it again in a second. He uses that psalm, and then in verse 29, he gives empirical evidence People want empirical evidence. Paul or Peter's using some right now. In verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's like, You can go, it's right outside the city. And his audience at that time, everybody knew that David's tomb was right outside the city of Jerusalem. They could just go double check. And so, what's the point of that? He's saying, David couldn't have been talking about himself because he died and stayed dead. But instead, he says, David was then referring to the one who would follow in his lineage because he refers down to to the oath. It says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ or the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And I'll pause there. The oath, if you want it for your notes, is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 15, where God makes a promise that David will have a descendant on the throne forever. And some people thought, oh, that means that there'll always be another person to take over for the, the next person and take over for the next person. But that's not what God was referring to. He was saying that his Messiah would sit on the throne forever. There would be one person to stay on the same throne for eternity. And when he came, that's what he would do. And so he, he's using that as the oath that he's referring to. And because David was willing to believe in the promises of God, he knew that wouldn't necessarily take place for him or that it wouldn't take place for him personally, but it would take place for someone who came in his lineage. And if you want to take a look at Matthew chapter one, if you want to take a look at Luke chapter three, we have the lineage from both sides, Joseph and Mary, and the fact that Jesus was born from the tribe of Judah in the line of David. So, uh, the next thing he says, um, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, now Peter's pointing to the fact that we're eyewitnesses of the fact that this took place. Not only is he giving empirical evidence, but now he's giving um, testimonial evidence. 
He's saying, we saw this. We know that it happened. We watched him. And that's why I read earlier 1 Corinthians 15, because it happened. Because Paul is saying even 500 people saw him at one time. It says, um, yeah, so this is what, this is what Peter's doing here. In, in going this far, um, we are all witnesses, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110. What Peter has done is he started in Joel chapter two and, and the last verse that he read was Joel chapter two, verse 32 that says, All who, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he goes to Psalm 16 and says that the Messiah would sit at the right hand of God. And then he goes to Psalm 110 and says that the Messiah is the Lord because of the right hand being at the Lord. So he goes from Psalm 16 goes right hand to right hand in Psalm 110, to right hand in Psalm 110, to Lord, and back to, you guys tracking with me? Joel chapter two, verse 32, and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He connects the dots for all of us so that we know who it is that we're supposed to trust in so that we can experience salvation. And he does this without studying. You know how long I had to study just to get this far? It's the Holy Spirit leading him to be able to do this, to be able to present the gospel in a way that actually had an effect on people. He says in verse 36, now this is where he, he turns the screws down. He ratchets down on people and says, let all the house of Israel know their, therefore for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's, he says that God has made him Christ, not only Christ, but Lord. Lord and Christ is a reference to his deity and his humanity. Because as Christ, he is the king in the line of David, but as Lord, he is God in the flesh. And he brings those together and says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's, what, that's the point he's drawing us to. Revelation chapter one, verse eight, in case we were wondering something about, could he really be God? Quoting from um, Isaiah, John the Revelator is quoting from Jesus, who's quoting from Isaiah. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We even sang that, right? This morning, we sang that. Then it says in verse 17 of, of Revelation 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He is God in the flesh. He was dead and he is alive. But then Peter puts it on each one of us and says, you crucified him. And you might ask yourself, how in the world is it that I crucified him? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't know sin, but we have sinned. And he became our sin for us. So therefore I crucified him because I sinned. 
What is sin? Sin is, is missing God's mark of righteousness, either by omission or commission, either doing the wrong thing or not doing the right thing. Either way, it's not God's righteousness. It's not God's perfect standard. I've broken that. I've lied, I've stolen, I've cheated, I've done the things that I ought not do. This may work as a good example, and, and yeah, this, this, I have time for this. Um, some of you guys, and I've, I've been told and warned not to use a, a sports analogy for sports that you don't play, but I did play it once, um, and that would be this, golf. I hate it. <laughs> but the reason this works is because, okay, so the one time I ever did golf, Hole number, or T number one, I'm teeing off, and I have my, Matt was there with me. I saw you, where are you, Matt? He's in the back, okay. Matt was there with me. I hit a truck <laughs> on hole one. Now, here's the reason, the whole reason I'm bringing that up is I'm a terrible golfer. My score, I quit playing. I didn't even finish the game. It didn't matter. But do you know what a perfect golf score is? 18. You know who's ever gotten one? Nobody. You know why? You'd have to get a hole in one for 18 holes in a row. It ain't going to happen. And the reason I bring that up is because there's a standard. That's how you know the difference. Well, there's a lot of different ways to know the difference between me and, and you know, a professional golfer. You can pick one. I don't even have one off the top of my head. It's Bubba Watson, is that? No, is, or he NASCAR. Anyways, okay, it doesn't matter. That's, that's not the point. The point is that there's a righteousness and a righteous standard for us knowing what a good person is and what a bad person is. But the standard for, for God's righteousness is perfection. If we're willing to have a standard in a game as silly as golf, and if you like it, I'm sorry, but if we're willing to have a standard for something like that, how much more should God be able to have a standard for heaven? Because the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned, when we look towards heaven and we see what it is that heaven actually is, where God wipes away every tear from our eyes, where there's no more pain or death or sorrow for the former things have passed away, it says in Revelation 21.4, in order for that to take place, there can't be sin. Because then you're bringing death to a place where death doesn't take place. You're bringing pain to a place where pain isn't anymore. Does that make sense? So we have this perfect standard of righteousness that has to be met. And Christ is the only one who can meet that standard. Therefore, when he says, you crucified him, I say, I know. I did. It's my fault. But I'm thankful. Because had he not died, I would be dead in my trespasses and sins. I would have no hope in this world. But because he's alive, and that's what we're celebrating today, we can live with him. Notice it says that they were cut to the heart. It says in, in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They understood that there's a response necessary. When you hear words like this, that the one that they had been looking for their entire lives, this Messiah, came, and yet they killed him anyways. They didn't like who he was when he got there, and they killed him. And now they recognize, oh no, what have I done? What is it that I have to do? 
They acknowledge that there's a response necessary. Even remember we talked about it on Wednesday, the, the Philippian jailer in, in Acts 16 said the same thing. He walked up to Paul and Silas who were in prison. You can get the, the story in Acts 16. And he says, what must I do to be saved? He knew there was, a, a require, there was something that was necessary. There's a, a response that should take place. And they're cut to the heart by the spirit of God, I believe, so that they would be heartbroken because God intends for each one of us to receive a new heart. It says in Jeremiah 31 that he would give us a new heart. It says in Ezekiel 36 that he would give us a new heart based on a new covenant. Not do this and live, but I have done this so that you can live. That's the new covenant. That's how we receive a new heart. See, it's okay to be heartbroken if you're going to replace it with something better. How many people have gone through heartbreak only to find out that they're really happy that that wasn't the spouse that they ended up with? Jesus is the greater spouse. He's the bridegroom that we've all been longing for. He's the one that we're looking to in all things. So they said, what do I do? And what we have to acknowledge is there's no such thing as neutral. Neutrality is a myth. There's not a single thing in life besides your transmission that you can be neutral in. It's not possible. You will always have a bias. You will always have a direction. There will always be something. And if you, you do what you could do, which is this, what could you do? You could say, eh, okay, it's another Easter. It's another Sunday. You know, hurry it up so we can go do the, the egg hunt. We could just say, forget about it. We could go along and say, I'm okay with carrying the label of Christian, but I don't want to have my life actually look like Christ. I don't want to be changed and have the nature of Jesus. I don't want to live holy like he was holy, even though that's what he's called me to. I'd just rather have you call me that. That's what we could do. Or the, the question that we can ask ourselves is, what should you do? And Peter answers that in the next portion here. He says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I read that. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, even this far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves or be saved from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that, added that day about 3,000 souls. The question is, what should we do? And Peter gives the answer. He says, repent and receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the word that's been given. He gave the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for our sins because we crucified him. And if I believe, if I trust, Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as believe in him, excuse me, John said it, as many as believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's not a requirement of doing, being able to do backflips or qualify in some sporting event. It's not about our ability, but everything that he's done, I just have to trust in him. I have to repent, which is to change my mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Sometimes we have this negative connotation of what it is to repent, but understand it's, it's really just agreeing with God about our sin in our lives. 
It's getting on the same page as him with the gospel. Your word says that Jesus died, was buried and rose again for my sins. I agree to that. I am cha- I'm not gonna think about sin the same way. And um, I was reading, uh, I think it was Vance Havner that said this, but he, it was, had to do with the idea that true repentance looks like hating a sin because it offends God rather than just hating the consequence so that you won't get in trouble. And what Peter's calling them to do is change their mind in the way they think about sin and receive the word. And in receiving the word, they'll also receive the same Holy Spirit that they were witnessing has made available to all who believe. Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 tells us, in him, Jesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Jesus seals us with our Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, excuse me, and unites us to be one of his. That's the good news of of Easter. That's the good news of the resurrection, that Christ is alive and because he lives, I I too will live. And I have that hope. Or I can just chalk it up as another another day passed, another obligation that I met. Someone asked me to come to church on Easter Sunday and and I punched the clock. They'll ask me again next year and I just got to put up with that guy talking for a while. But... Could it be that there's even one person that has had their heart cut, not because of anything I said, but because of the word of God, because of the spirit of God? And I would ask you to be able to answer the question, what should you do? And the question that you have to ask yourself is, what will I do? Because there's no such thing as neutral. Jesus didn't take a neutral stance on your sin in your life, and neither should you. He's alive, and because he's alive, those of us who have put their faith in him will live too. So don't leave here without praying. Don't leave here without spending time just fellowshipping. I'm going to pray. We're going to do another song. We, have, we, we got some stuff from Costco, like muffins and whatnot. The only thing I'm asking is that you let the volunteers hand them out. So just stay, talk, fellowship. Let's get to know each other. And if you need prayer, Ben is available, the guy that was leading worship. And I'm available, and there's a lot more people that are available to pray. But don't leave here and just think, ah, I'll deal with that tomorrow. I quote this all the time. J.C. Ryle, guy who lived in 1860, said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are ever grateful for the fact that you would be willing to give your son to die for people like us. We're thankful that that we can have our hope in you. We're thankful that Jesus didn't stay dead, but when he hung from that cross, he cried out, Te Telestai, it is finished. All of my sins are paid in full. There's nothing I can do to add to the work of Christ. It's just a response to the gift. We love you, God. We're thankful for today. Thank you for each person that's here. Thank you for the patience that they have. God, eternity is a long time, and we are looking forward to it. I pray that each one of us is ready for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.